wanted to discuss with you, um, and I titled this The Art of Prophecy, and the reason, reason I did is because um, I really want to look at this as a lifestyle of what does it mean to be a prophetic people. And um, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, very briefly. I, I did just a study about how prophecy um, was part of the early church and how it really crushed the church by and large. Um, I actually read some really interesting statements from the Assemblies of God um, regarding prophecy. I read some really interesting statements regarding uh, prophecy from some of the reformists, um, some of the Lutherans, the Baptists, the Anabaptists, just trying to get a feel for where they put prophecy. It, it is probably one of the more um, confusing is not the word, but, um, but certainly um, uh, opinionated topics within the church by and large because you, you do have groups of people who really have no opinion whatsoever, but the groups that have opinions have very, very strong opinions. And um, so we're going to hopefully talk a little bit about that as well. Um, I'll leave to you a few notes. Uh, I didn't write a whole lot on this. Um, as I said, I want to try to keep this moderately brief. The concept of prophecy is one of the most contested, confusing, and in my opinion, over-spiritualized aspects of the walk of the Christian life. I think the number one problem with prophecy in today's church is the over-spiritualizing of it. I'm just going to drop the beginning. The function of prophecy is endorsed throughout the scripture, from Jehovah in the Old Testament to Jesus in the New Testament, from Moses to Paul. Prophecy is a common theme within their existence. The stance on prophecy is separated into three primary groups within the post-model church, for those of you who are not aware of this, uh, are familiar with that terminology. We're living in what's called the post-modern church. The post-modern church um, def uh, are defined into three, primarily three separate categories. The cessationists, which cessationists just simply believe that prophecy is not for today. The reason they believe the gift of prophecy is not for today um, is the Bible, they believe, is all that God had to say. And as is the case, God is done talking. Okay? So they believe that the Bible is everything God had to say about everything. And he's done talking. Um, I'll, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to throw my opinion around. Just telling you that's what they believe. Uh, the second group is um, the more charismatic group that allow liberty when speaking prophetic words, most of which begin with, thus says the Lord. And there are also those that are just simply unsure. You've got an entire group of people now who are kind of okay with prophecy, but they kind of don't know what it means. They kind of feel like that it's, it's, it's in the Bible, but they really don't understand how to apply it. They don't actually say that it's not from God, but they don't actively test it. I believe the primary concern for us has to be the question, why? Why do we prophesy? What does it mean to prophesy? Do we always have to feel the unction or the leading of the Spirit? Or is it something that should be natural to us? This, evening, this evening's topic is the art of prophecy, primarily because I feel the more I consider what it means to be prophetic, it can simply mean a lifestyle where we express creatively using a vocal, 
physical or illustrative framework by which we convey the beauty of his heart. Most of the meaning I've just given you is the Webster's definition of heart. Read that to you again. I believe the more I consider what it means to be prophetic, it can simply mean a lifestyle where we express creatively or using uh, by using a vocal, physical, or illustrative framework by which to convey the beauty of his heart. Other than his heart, everything else in that sentence is the definition of the word heart. So, isn't it interesting that God and foremost artist and and he decided that there, there are, are some beautiful poems and, and early writings regarding how God the Greek said very beautifully in philosophy how God with his brush painted the skies how you see these things about how God very artistically wove creation together even our very DNA even the fact that you look around the room and each of us looks acts talks different we think different we we feel different about things that in and of itself is art and that in and of itself is what it means to be expressive one of the things that i think we have maybe missed the mark on is thinking prophecy has to be something that happens when god gives us a word for something i do believe that god gives us words for things Actually, do you realize that the primary issue that cessationists, those who don't believe prophecy exists anymore, do you realize the primary issue they have with the current charismatic prophecy model is that most people say things like, I have a word from God for them. They believe that as soon as you say that, that you have a word from God, that you're competing with the Bible because it is the word of God. So actually, if you really ever want to mess with a cessationist, give them a prophetic word. Just don't tell them it's a word from God, and they'll be okay with it. Isn't that weird? It's all in how we approach it. The, as long as you don't say, I've got a word from God for you. Because as soon as what they say, the argument is, as soon as you say, I've got a word from God for you, what that means is it has to be something that is uh, inerrant because everything God says is without error. The challenge is, God never said that about prophetic words. Okay? He, he didn't say that. What he actually said is, Things like the spirit of the prophet is such as in the prophet. What he actually taught is that, and the best example I can give is simply this, where Jesus said, I don't say anything that I don't see my father doing or hear my father saying. So, so in many ways, the, the, the example would be that Jesus is simply describing vocally what he's hearing.
the things of God. And let's be very honest. Don't we have to at least think or believe that our ability to perceive, whether it's seeing or hearing, is going to be subject to how we see or the lens with which we have how we see or hear? Your lenses are going to change how you see something. And so within that, does that make that prophetic word wrong? Now, let me be clear. Are there wrong prophetic words? Absolutely. Have I given some? Yep. I've got it wrong. I mean, like, really wrong. Like, moving wrong. Like, um, you know, God said to do this and he didn't wrong. I've got it really, really wrong before. Part of what I just want to talk about tonight is just forgiveness in general. Just to be. Just to be. So, um, Tosh and I have been married now 17,000 years, and we, um, uh, I think, if I remember right, we have uh, lived in the house we're in for like 15 years. Does that sound about right? Um, and um, a few years ago, first time ever I said out loud to someone else that I missed God when we bought that house. Tosh and I have had this discussion. I, I'm not saying that it was wrong. I'm not saying we shouldn't be there. I'm not saying God would, hasn't blessed it. I'm not saying I'm just changing it all. I'm just telling you that in the process of how we did it, I messed it up. In the process of me hearing it wrong, it did affect us financially and set us back financially at that time for, you know, 18-year-old. In fact, let's let's just walk the story. Think about how the story works. We're 18 years old. We're renting a house and then get a loan from a bank to put in, to buy that house and then also put in, um, you know, put the house at the farm where we live now. When they do that, the house was only X amount of dollars. The loan was actually for subsequently more. So now you just handed $80,000 to your 18-year-old with a checkbook. Right? And so, uh, so part of what I had to come to grips with was that if I, I didn't do it all right, doesn't mean that God hasn't blessed it, doesn't mean that, because what we're said is, all things work together for good to those that walk are called according to his purpose or walk according to his purpose. And and what we haven't understood is that all things work together for good is the caveat or the safety net for when we're not really in his perfect will. We have said all things work together for good as the primary point of his will. It's actually supposed to be the safety net for when we fall out of it. When do we miss it? Let me just say it this way. He wouldn't have put such an incredible promise in place if he didn't expect us to miss it. He wouldn't have put a promise, a, a safety net that is so secure and so powerful and so wonderful and so life-giving in place if he hadn't expected that we're going to miss it and that he is very capable of still utilizing that thing to get us where we need to be. Because even though sometimes I don't take the direct route, 
I can still get to the destination. He's that good. And yet the challenge for me was it took me almost 15 years to say out loud what I knew in my heart two years in. I missed it when you made fun of me for preaching. I thought God said I got it wrong. Why? Because we think as soon as we say I got it wrong, we burn the whole thing. This is me being real and this is you acting like you've never done anything wrong. I, I, while I'm up here saying I've totally missed God, all of you are saying is hallelujah. While you were getting things wrong, I was memorizing the Beatitudes. Good for you, but I've got it wrong. Right? You may, while, you may have been getting it right since day one, but while you were home raising pet birds from the dead, I was messing up how to be able to hear from God by getting it wrong. You know, and that may be just part of the process. But for me, I know what held me back further was the thought that I couldn't get it wrong. Because as soon as I realized that I had messed this thing up, what immediately meant in my mind was that I had messed it all up. And he gives such an incredible grace for us who get it wrong. And what we have to understand is why do we prophesy? What is it for is so absolutely vital to the conversation. Do we always have to feel the unction leading in the spirit? The answer, I'm not going to give many answers tonight. I'm going to leave most of the questions. I will answer that. No. I will say this. If you only prophesy to Christians who have an anemic understanding of what prophecy is about. And furthermore, if you only prophesy in church, your prophecy is bankrupt in what God intended it to be. And if all of your prophecies start or end with stealing a stirring of the spirit, then prophecy for you is a function and not a lifestyle. Honestly, I find that that me sending one of you a note, a text that says, while I was praying for you this morning, God showed me this elaborate vision of whatever of you, you know, uh, um, you know, I don't know. On the Alps, like in the sound of music, you know, running around singing the hills are alive. It, that thing is no greater, no more grand than me dealing with somebody in, at work or in public at, that's having a hard day and just looking at me and saying, hey, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. That's going to work out well. somebody on the back and prophesy? How do we encourage somebody never mention Jesus, never mention God, never mention spirit? Why do we think that all prophecy has to be spiritual? Why is it that we believe that if it's prophecy, it has to revolve around their purpose? Let me just tell you something. One of the things that we've is this, this, some of the language we use is very, it's not fair for people. And part of the, the language that we use comes from the framework that God, we want God to use us. As soon as you stop 
with the language that you just want to be used by God, you've ended with yourself being a utilitarian tool and not a partner in a romantic relationship. You are not a tool in his hand. You are somebody that he is in a divine romantic love relationship with. And the idea that you would want to be used by God is not actually how he ever talks about you. So we then, in that same framework, interpret how we prophesy, because anytime we're speaking about what it is God wants for people, we always think it has to be about their function, their purpose, their gift, their calling. Why? Because we think that we're all just swords and plows and hammers. And what is the, what's the old language? When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When we think that God just wants to use us, then everybody else just needs to be used. So all of our framework and thought work about how we prophesy and how we speak grace to people and how we administer things to people really then starts to function more in ways that's just, how do I get them functioning? When that's not really what Jesus ever did. In fact, Jesus never said things like that when he would speak prophetically to people. He would call them into life, not call them into utility. Because I would like to suggest to you that until you come into life, your utility is never going to be more effective than when utility is in function. When you're in utility, you will feel fulfilled, but you'll never know what life is, only what utility or the fullness that comes with being functional. That's why people only feel good when the anointing's on them, and they're just feeling real stirred up and giving words and laying hands on people, and people are falling down. Some of the, some of the most shallow and emotionally bankrupt people I've ever met are that way, because they only feel full when they're being pastors. And we've done things like that and we've made what Noah and I were talking about today. We've established what what we now call professional Christianity and that was never God's plan. So prophecy as a lifestyle is an artistic form in which we're just simply expressing creatively the life-giving nature of who he is. And I would really promise you, you know what, what I did today that was Absolutely prophetic in nature. I let a car go in front of me at the stop sign. Why is that prophecy? Because I'm prophetic. So if I'm prophetic, what I do becomes prophecy. You get seeing it? So it, it, it's the, because it's the, about the intent. The intent of me at that moment was not to just be kind, although that's never a bad idea. If, if there is in question, go with the be kind. Just to make sure we're clear on that part. But the, the, the best thing I can say is that we as a people at that moment, if it's my job to speak on behalf of them or be life-giving on behalf of them, at that moment, I recognize this person looked like they're in a hurry. I allowed them to go ahead of me, even though it was my turn. And I just said, Father, bless them, be with them, and give them life. I did not speak 
anything over them about getting saved. I didn't speak anything to them about their purpose. I didn't speak anything to them about overcoming with the blood of Jesus. And I want you to shake them while they're driving. And I want you to give them tongues, more tongues than their tongues have. Any of that stuff. It's just, Father, that guy looks like he's in a hurry. Let's let him go. That's grace. That's being prophetic. So how do we do that better? Because that's what Jesus did well. And that's really what the art of prophecy is about, is creatively expressing what life is to people. And some of it's through language, some of it's through action, and some of it's just through lifestyle illustrations. Most of this you find all through the scripture, this being the way it's done. In fact, Zechariah 1 gives a great story um, where the enemy, this is an illustration, Um, the enemy causes four horns to be raised up against the people. These four horns are four evil powers, okay? So these four horns that are raised up represent, excuse me, represent enemy forces, armies, whatever it might be. And the Bible says specifically that those four horns are raised up to, with the intent to cause shame, fear, and anxiety to scatter and immobilize the people. God's answer to this was to raise up four artisans, is what the Bible says. Or people that move in his creative expression. Do you realize what this says? Four armies come to destroy everything, and God's answer is, I needed artists. Do you realize how incredible that is? Do you realize how incredible it is that in the Old Testament, David was able to tap into when Saul would go full-on demonic, ready to rip somebody's head off, like poltergeist kind of stuff, and they would say, get me a harp player. Find me a musician. Why? Because he was tapping into the New Testament principle that we don't fight battles like they fought battles. And so part of what we have to understand is that we are people that walk with that in our mouths and upon us and in us. And I think that one of the the best things we could do is be gracious. And I don't have to put God bless on my tip in order for what I tip to come out. You get it? That's the thing. How do I just walk up to a homeless person, hand him $20 and some food, and walk away? And that thing be just as prophetic as if I spoke to them about the purpose that God had for and plan for their life and how that God had loved them and all that. And all that stuff is fine. But I'm not, I'm, my point is it's not greater than. If it's who we are, it exudes from every part of us. And it should be the most natural way that you exhibit life and love in who he is. Numbers chapter 11, I'm just going to give you the the quick version of this story. It's one of my favorite stories. I could just show like every single one from a different angle because I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite things. So Numbers chapter 11, verses 24 through 30. Tell us that at the time when all of those who were the elders, the prophets, were called out and gathered at the tabernacle, the Bible says that two of them, verse 26, remained back at the camp. This, the, the two of them, their names were Eldad and Medad. They were brothers. 
whoever their mom and dad was were pranksters. Because whoever's going to name your kids L-Dad and Me-Dad, I don't know what to say about these people. I really don't even have any jokes to say. I just, it, 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 I can't go past that and not at least bring up the fact that he named me so Eldad and Medad are these two brothers. Apparently their alarms did not go off. They didn't get the call because they don't show up. All the rest of the prophets gather together at the tabernacle when they were supposed to. The appointed time had come. God had, was going to speak to them. These guys were going to prophesy. It was going to be incredible. Sunday, 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 the super event had come, right? And these two guys don't wake up. And what actually happens is that while God moves upon the rest of the prophets, the Bible says that these two guys started prophesying as well. And it said they prophesied while they were still in the camp. So these guys are not where they're supposed to be. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. And they're not following orders or plans or whatever you want to call it. And yet because these guys are connected to what it is God's doing, they get touched because God touches them. Now, there's a couple things that I think we need to understand. The first thing that I think we need to understand is we've absolutely underestimated the mercy and grace of God to meet us even when we don't do everything right. I have so worried about things like timing. I have so worried about things like um, being in the right place. I have so worried about things like hearing and doing correctly. And I, I do believe that those things should be of, of importance. But I also believe that for me personally, the timing of God and not getting ahead of God and not getting behind God actually became a stumbling block that caused me to not do anything in my life. Because I was so afraid that I would get ahead or behind of him that I just didn't do anything, which caused me to be just immobilized. And I believe that his goodness and his mercy is so much bigger than he's given credit for, where even when I am ahead or behind him, he's not surprised. He's not like pouring out over here, you're over here, you got ahead of him, and he's going, well, I, I don't know where he went. I can't see him. I've, I've done lost him. I know. He just doesn't do that. He's not surprised. The second thing I think we have to mention, this is the, the part that I think is really important for us this evening because this really speaks to where we are as a house right now. This idea that that actually gives them access to things is really, really, really important. The first principle we have to see from this is that we can be in relationship with people and when they get breakthrough, we get breakthrough. Let me explain what I mean by that. That would be like you guys being at church on a Sunday morning and God comes and just like lays everybody out. I stay home because I'm not feeling well, and the same thing would happen here, he does there. And we have experienced this to some degree in the past. Even how we just talked about prophecy is similar to that, right? Where one person's breakthrough becomes all of our breakthrough. This is why relationship is so important. This is why this thing called family is so important. Because what happens is, there's this weird thing in the spirit where when we come into relationship together and we're willing to be vulnerable together and we're willing to say, we're going to stand together. When you inherit something from him, I also inherit the same thing. 
And this prophecy example is an incredible example about how being connected in relationship gives you access to things you wouldn't normally have access to. So many times, more times than I can admit or, or um, even aware of, all it takes is the look in one of your faces or a word from you or something that you do that, uh, that, that I can literally feel it gives me permission to be what I'm supposed to be. More times than I can possibly count, I've spent time. Today I was talking, uh, Noah and I had lunch and we were talking, and just spending time with him gives me permission. I don't know why, I don't know how else to explain it. Just time with him gives me permission to feel like I can be authentically what God wants me to be. And it is my intent, it is in fact my primary goal and responsibility to be that for you. That in my voice, you find a, a measure of endorsement, a measure of liberty, a measure of freedom to be what you're supposed to be. That when you hear what I have to say, when you see me, when you're around me, that you feel like that there is a, a, a belonging that's there that gives you the liberty to try and to be what you didn't think you could try or be. And that is what this promise is. And here's the key, you guys. What we don't oftentimes realize is sometimes we don't realize the people we're having this effect on. Sometimes we don't realize that God's visiting us, and as a result, He actually begins to visit others, and they are experiencing breakthrough. Because the response, let me just be clear, the response, we would like to think that everybody's high-fiving us. Oh my gosh, we figured out this trick. You can stay home, we'll do rotations. I get to sleep in next Sunday. So like two at a time, you get to stay home for service, and I'll go on to service, and everybody gets, you know, the same reward. No, no, no. Tribalism in full effect. What happens? Tribalism goes into full effect and says, you weren't part of our group, so you shouldn't get to inherit what we inherited. You didn't put in the work. And if you don't think we think like that, you don't know us very well. I won't say you don't know you very well. You definitely don't know people very well. Because people believe that for you to at least not even get more than I have, at least to even get equal to what I have, you have to put in as much work as I've put in. And everybody believes they've put in more work than everybody else. Everybody believes that their life is harder than everybody else. In fact, if you don't believe me, just ask somebody around you how busy they are. Find me someone that says they're not. Everybody's busy. Just everybody's busy. And if you if and if you think that they're not, just describe to them some of your schedule. Because immediately, I guarantee you, they're going to take it as a personal challenge. Oh well, I see what you're doing here. I can really outdo that. I'll I'll see your fifty and raise your ten. And call on the flip. You know, 
So what we think is this thing where that it would be so easy for us to look at this as a grace-filled opportunity, but what actually happens is these guys look and say, wait a minute, Moses, this is kind of a leader, you've got to tell him to shut up. These people are speaking grace-filled prophetic words of life from God to everybody else around them who didn't get an invitation to the party. Let me just be clear. Your job is to speak grace-laden, life-filled words to everybody else that hasn't had a seat at the table you've had a seat at. Your job, our responsibility is to speak grace-laden words that reflect and give an offering from the table I have not earned, yet I've been given a seat at, to others who've not received the opportunity to have that seat. Because the reality is, I didn't earn it in the first place. And just like Peter said, freely I've received this, I have a responsibility to freely give it. So they turn to Moses and they say, you've got to make him shut up. And Moses said, wait a minute, I would that you would all prophesy and that everybody was able to do this. Why? Well, Jesus said it very simply, because they're not against us, they're for us. So let me ask you a question. Do you feel like that within this concept that we have a responsibility when we're doing this, to, to, to make sure that they understand who we're speaking on behalf of. So maybe a better way to say this, if you're ambiguous in the way you speak a life-giving word in who you're speaking on behalf of, does that make it wrong? Because some of what we've been taught in today's wonderful postmodern argument is that anytime you don't say, I'm telling you this as a Christian, believing that Jesus is the only way. And if you don't accept him by praying this prayer, that you'll go to hell. If we don't say it with that caveat or that disclaimer, then we're somehow being ashamed of the gospel. And I honestly, I honestly don't think that is the picture of the life of Jesus. He would give liberty to people to find freedom and acceptance while never asking them to be part of his group. And in fact, more specifically, if ever there was anyone who was authorized to invite somebody to be part of his group, it was the guy who the group's namesake is for, Jesus. Christians. Quite honestly, I think he would be ashamed of the fact that we've titled a group after him in the first place. Because I don't think that was ever his intention. You do realize he didn't come up with the name Christian. I got to say that and just be clear. He didn't start that. Because that was never his intention. So, how do we be a people that, that, that live prophetically? I would suggest to you that with Grace Home Church, I felt like being 
like prophecy. You take that. Prophecy was something that happened during a church service. Somebody hears from God and gives a prophetic word. They come up, they get a microphone. And if there's ever such a thing as the echo chamber or preaching to the choir, it's prophecy that only exists within the room of people who already agree with everything you're getting ready to say. It's like being in a locker room with a team and telling them we're the best team in the league. You're probably not going to get booed. That's kind of the principle. We all wouldn't be here if we didn't think this was right. So what we have to understand is I would honestly suggest to you that prophecy in church is should be less than 5% of our prophetic output. In 1 Corinthians 14, when he's talking about prophecy, he says that we should pursue with passion all spiritual gifts, but most that we could prophesy. He goes on further and says that we should speak in tongues, but rather that we would prophesy. Why? Because he says it's greater. Now, when it says greater there, it doesn't mean it's greater than speaking in tongues, like it's it's more, more effective or that it is more um, difficult or more potent or powerful or any of that kind of stuff. But what it does mean is that it's more Magus. The word magus there just means it has a different atmospheric impact. The magus word for greater means it means like the atmosphere or the environment. Here's what I mean by that. When I speak a prophetic word to somebody at Bridges, even though I'm not saying anything about it being prophetic, if I'm just being gracious to them and, and, and allowing my words to be life-giving, that word, now here's the thing, I, I'm going to end with this, that is magus. You do realize that as soon as I speak, the Bible says our words contain him. The words are presence. Spirit. Spirit is presence. So as soon as I speak, with a a, 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 a tangent, uh, not tangible, um, a, um, uh, a conscious awareness that I'm speaking life, as soon as I do that, my words actually contain His presence, Him. So I'm literally speaking Him into the room. How much time do we spend asking him to walk with us, to be with us, to come into the room when really in many cases all it takes is just for us to speak life and in my words he comes in the room. Do we believe, I think we could say this definitively, that we all believe that grace is something that God is drawn to. Right? We believe that. In fact, the Bible says that he's drawn to grace and that pride is something that he resists. So if we, if we believe that, here's another thought. Do you realize that in many ways when we speak grace, a grace-filled word upon somebody, if we're just blessing them and saying, you know, I'm going to take something really, really simple. So let's say that um, uh, uh, the next time that, uh, that you go to Starbucks, or the next time you go to Myers or wherever it might be, and they do something, and you say, 
This was really great. Thank you so much. You did such a good job of that. Have I mentioned Jesus? Have I mentioned their purpose? Have I mentioned anything about heaven or hell? That is a grace-filled word. That's a life-giving word. And within that, I've actually not only introduced him into the room so anybody else that comes into that room can be affected by him in the room. I think we would all agree that the thing that changes us all is him in the room. The second thing is I've specifically painted them. I've marked them with grace. And as we all have already said, that grace is something that you are drawn to and come to. I've put grace upon them. And God says, one of my sons or daughters has painted grace upon this room. I can't resist them. I've got to run to them. He has to respond. We're literally putting things upon people so that God can come. So the last thing I'll say about this is we better be really, really, really careful how this works. Because much like in this situation, I want to be clear here. You do realize that in the story I just gave you where you have the elders and they go in and prophesy and there's a few that are outside of the council, uh, in the council, excuse me, and those guys end up prophesying. Um, I do believe that he's going to be doing this in greater form and fashion in this house. So as an example, like tonight, the Baileys aren't able to be here and, and we prayed and blessing them. But I believe that what he's doing here is going, they're going to have access to. They've got the same debit card that I have to be able to draw from the account, even though they weren't here. That's how this works. That's a change for us, but that's how this works. That being said, I want you to be very aware. In the story I just gave you where there's the elders and there's the couple, Eldad and Medad, you're not, when you're functioning as a prophetic person, you're not Eldad and Medad in that story. You're the ones who've been invited into the tabernacle. So be careful how you respond when others get gifts, when others get rewards, when others get things happening to them. Because in that story, you're the ones who are walking with him. You're not the ones who are running late. You're the ones who exist in the tabernacle. You're the called ones. So within that story, there are going to be people around you, some of which you might not like them, you might not, you might have struggles with them, and what happens oftentimes is, I've noticed that as I get around people, other people will sometimes get promotions or good things will begin to happen to them just because of that measure of me walking in His grace, and I'm just trying to be nice to somebody, and the next thing I know, they get promoted, and I get really frustrated because I'm like, they don't work as hard as I do, and they're kind of rude. Be careful. Be really careful, because what we have to remember is, it's our job to administer grace. It's not our job to rule over how it affects people. And sometimes we would have a tendency then when somebody outside of our camp, outside of our tribe, outside of our group starts doing well to say, well, wait a minute, God, that's not right. Why are you blessing them? 
I'm the one that's going to camp. I'm the one that showed up on time. I'm the one that's doing this. I'm the one that's doing that. I'm not talking about anybody in this church. I'm not talking about anybody that's coming here tonight. I'm literally talking about people who are not part of our tribe. I'm talking about people who maybe aren't even believers. I'm talking about when people that don't follow God get blessed because they're around you, don't get ticked off because of the reward they receive, but recognize that the Bible says it's the goodness of God that brings them to repentance. So rejoice over his goodness coming to them, not get frustrated because they inherited it, because they inherited it because of you. That's how this is supposed to work. We have to make sure we find ourselves in the story the right way. We don't get to play both sides. So tonight, um, we're, we're not going to activate this, but I would like to just say this. Activate it. Utilize this. The most com- the easiest question, I remember the first time we, uh, Josh and I started teaching uh, prophetic stuff years ago at uh, a church that we were in Christ. The first thing I, I did to, uh, to do this in a group, we were with a, a bunch of kids um, in, in our youth group, and I just said, we sat down and they all said, as we all have, I can't do that. That's too hard. So I just simply said, okay, here's the question. If Jesus was in the room, what would he say? If Jesus was in the room right now, what would he say? And it's amazing to me how easy that is for people. Well, he would probably say that he loves us. He would say that he died for us. He would say that he cares for us. And they just start going down the line. And it's like, yep, that's it. That's prophecy. Hearing his heart for somebody else, it's just that simple. And it's always going to either be hearing his heart for them or hearing their heart for him. And sometimes what you're going to hear is that they're hurting. Sometimes what you're going to hear is that they're messed up and that they're angry and maybe that they're angry at at God and maybe that they're angry at Christians and maybe that they're really, really, really angry at people just like you. And how do we get past that to be able to say this is what God cares about? That's our job. That's prophecy. And that should be such a regular part of our lives and something we utilize daily, 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 daily. I cannot remember the last time I had a prophecy go out and go, I have used the right prophecy. I've used it on numerous people throughout the day in various forms and fashions, some overt and some covert. So it's both good and bad. Okay? All right. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for this night. We thank you for your word. We thank you for... Father, trusting us that we can speak on your behalf. We recognize that we're not always going to get it right. We recognize that there's going to be mistakes. We recognize that there's going to be challenges. We recognize that we're going to put our foot in our mouth and we're going to fall flat on our face at times. But, Lord, we recognize also that you really don't care. You're not going to take back or withhold anything from us in the midst of those failures or mistakes. You're not going to uh, even judge them as failures. Uh, You're simply going to look at us and say, this is how I want to hold you up. This is how I want to strengthen you. Help us to embrace that. Help us to embrace that sensitivity that says, you are always speaking. Help me to listen. 
thank you, Father, for who you are most of all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you. See everybody on Sunday. Have a great evening.